Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. This week we had a Dharma trio. Uh, Roy King, Tom Bruin, and Jay Davidson are all going to um, talk to us about compassion often and cushion. Buddhist teachings prepare us to respond with loving kindness and compassion. But what happens when we are in the moment dealing with others? How, for instance, do we respond to the suffering of family members, such as elderly parents? How open are we to receiving help from others when in need ourselves? In this full song of discussion, we will, we will draw from each other's real life experiences led by Tom, Jay, and Roy, who have recently spent time caring for parents who needed assistance. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so rather than just thinking of this as a talk or a discussion, um, you know, I'd like to think of it as the Dharma, the wisdom expressing itself through us, through us, through all of you and your input, your insights that we will share. Um, you know, this talk came about, uh, Jay suggested it. Um, he wanted to explore how the, uh, the practice of compassion is in the real world. Um, or as he said it, how does, how does it move from theory into practice when things aren't quite so neat, um, as life tends to be? So perhaps, perhaps I can orient us to the theory part uh, before we get into it, um, let you know kind of where this lies. So compassion is one of the four boundless states, or the 
divine abodes, the heavenly abodes, the Brahmaviharas, um, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and our favorite, equanimity. equanimity. <laughs> um, and we've had talks on all of those. And uh, in fact, equanimity, was that our last uh, retreat? Was the topic of equanimity? I don't remember. The one before. Anyway, we've dived into this stuff. But, you know, all four of these are in place to help us dissolve our sense of a separate self. And I think compassion is very well suited to do that. Um, And really the key characteristic of compassion is that it manifests as empathy, which is feeling with someone instead of for someone. Which, uh, you know, if you're just feeling for someone, that would be the near enemy of compassion, which is pity. Um, And so when approaching the suffering of others, perhaps one of the most important views to remember is, uh, comes from the Buddha's very first teaching, the inevitability of that all things, all beings arise and fall away. And, you know, with this comes the understanding that none of us None of our loved ones are immune to the forces of time, um, which are old age, sickness, and death. And that was part of his first teaching. That's what brought him to enlightenment, was going out into the real world and seeing old age, sickness, and death. And that's um, it's what set him on his path. So, um, you know, the reality is outcomes are going to happen, whether we act or not. And that lack of control does not make us inadequate to the task. Um, In fact, really the only task is making wise choices and, and, you know, taking, making wise actions in the moment grounded in, in wisdom. And, and that wisdom has to be informed by self-compassion. Um... Because while we may be interested in alleviating the suffering of others, um, we have to realize that we are deserving of compassion just as anyone else. The Buddha said, um, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who's more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. Um, and Jack Cornfield said, if your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. Mm. He was a little less wordy than the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first step towards self-compassion is accepting how little control one has over actual outcomes. Um, you know, judging ourselves for not being able to hold back the forces of time really only adds to the suffering um, of existing circumstances. So this compassion for self is not something that we do. It is actually, um, it's actually the absence of doing. It is the absence of judgment. Um, And accepting ourselves in this moment or situation exactly as it is. No blame for how things got to this point. 
no uh, regret or fear for a future we cannot control. It's just being in the present. And that's the ground of self-compassion. So with that in mind, to help us orient our, ourselves to the theory part of it, um, we wanted to explore kind of what the journey that we've been on, the things that we've experienced, and then we'll, you know, we'll hear from all of you as well. So why don't we start with you, Roy? Um, we'll sort of orient it in time. You know, Roy has been doing some things a little bit in the past, um, continues to be compassionate. And then at times. At times. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste. Um, and then we'll hear from Jay, and then I'll, I'll wrap up, and then we'll bring it to all of you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, this is a subject that's very close to my heart. Um, I have lived this, um, this subject of care of, of, of an elderly parent, and... Um, it's still very fresh in my mind and very fresh in my experience, in my everyday experience of my own life. So uh, I'm a little nervous because I haven't spoken about this outside of speaking to my closest of friends and some family. So uh, this is the first time I'm going to go ahead and take that step. So I'll do my best here. Um, I want to just give a quick synopsis of what brought me to this seat here and why, why I'm here. Um, there was a period of time from probably 2006 through 2011 that I lost many people in my life. I lost about five very close family friends, mostly friends. My best friend died in 2006, and my buddy Randy is the reason that I'm sitting here today, because it was, it was that Dharma gate, if you will, that brought me to the GBF. Um, so it's a com my, another very good close friend of mine, Patricia, died of ovarian cancer, and for the two and a half years before she passed in September of 2011, I was very much with her every step of the way. What I notice now is in terms of caring and stepping out of my own way and, and putting myself forth in helping others is, and how I was able to do that for my mom is ultimately everything was sort of a stepping stone that I see in my life. And not that, that any one of those people weren't as important as the other, but I became a little bit stronger in order to be able to step up to the plate and do what I did in, at the beginning of 2012. My mom was suffering from um, depression and sadness because her granddaughter and her husband, who lived in the apartment downstairs from the house, in the house that I grew up here in San Francisco, split up and they both left the house at the same time. So she was left alone at 80 by herself, and she'd been, they'd lived there for at least 10 years. So all of a sudden, you know, I started seeing signs in her that she was having a really hard time struggling with being alone. She felt very vulnerable, very afraid. And so Patricia had just passed away just a couple of months prior, and it was a really tough time, but I started to see that I really wanted to step up to the plate. And one of the things that, that I was able to do for her was my mom, when she married my father, you know, we hear about gay marriage and marriage is always is big in the news and has been, and for special reasons for us as gay men. But, you know, those vows of loving and honoring, but also being there for someone in sickness and in health till death do you part. And I saw her living that vow with my father 
And so I, one of the things that, that, that had, was always in the back of my mind is that I felt that she deserved the same. She deserved the same type of care, the same type of support. And so I thought, I always thought that would probably be me. So um, I dove right in, and for six months I, I refurbished my place that I would rent out and refurbished the apartment area downstairs to, for me to move in. And I moved in thinking that I was probably going to live this life for four to six years. I didn't think she was going to really make it to 90, but I thought she had a good four, five, six, maybe seven years left, and I thought, I'll do it. I can handle it. And so I moved in in the middle of August of 2012. And on the day that the Craigslist ad came out listing my apartment, which was a little less than four weeks later, my mom passed away quietly in her sleep. Um, it was a real shocker. We didn't expect it. And, um, but a couple, there was a couple of gifts along the way. I remember when I discovered her body, it was the hardest day of my life. But the paramedic on the scene as the coroner both gave me a gift and said, you know, and they were separate from each other. They, they were not there at the same time. They were hours apart. But they both said the same thing. They said, you know what? I really hope that I go like Victoria. I want to go like Victoria. And so that brought me a lot of peace. At the moment, not as much with some time. That was, it. That was helpful to me. And... Um, the other thing is UC Medical Center contacted me three months later and the autopsy, the, the uh, tissue samples from the autopsy is now at UC Medical Center where they're doing a study on people that have this atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease where you just sort of die out of the blue. And so um, I feel really good about that. But what I want to talk about today really more than anything is what is it that brought me here? As I mentioned, it was stepping stones of being, of, I'm the type that dives right in. So when it comes to like compassion and what, you're, what you talk about so eloquently, I, I wasn't really great at that. I was always sort of a taskmaster, like, you know, okay, well, you can handle it, just, just do it. You know? And so I just, that was always my tendency. So it was really great for the person who was in need, not always so great for myself. And I think after a few years now, I've learned a lot about that. And, I, and I, I've learned to have more compassion for myself. And I think that in the years to come, when it's time to step up to the plate again, I think I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Um, how I was able to make that decision, yeah, there was that kind of blind faith, dive right in thing. But I also had wonderful support. A lot of support from one of the wonderful people that are here in this room. I have really great friends here that are very loving and very giving to me, who are with me every step of the way, who are also very honest with me. And some of them even said, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do it. Because I don't think I could. And it's like, okay, but I'm going to do it. But I had their love and their support every step. Also, this room. I mean, I've been coming here since 2006 and rather regularly since 2008. And all the teachers that have sat here in, this, in these chairs and all the teachers that are among us here, you know, the, the Dharma and everything that we discuss here, all the support, everything that I've learned about compassion, everything I've learned about patience, everything that I've learned about really, you know, giving to someone else, which is really, I mean... One of my favorite teachings that the Buddha ever spoke about was if you had to take one thing from all that you have heard from me, 
may that one thing be compassion. And so that is something that I think drives me, and I think I'm hopefully I'll be able to do it in a different way next time. Um, again, if I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't change a thing. The only thing that I would would be, would be to have a little more care, because I'll tell you, for those of you who have helped someone else, who have stepped into that very, it's a scary place. It's not an easy place to go. You know, when you know that someone is dying or when you know that you're, that, that, that person's going to leave or is dealing with so much physically, to, to sort of step into that light, it's scary. And it's a light that also shines, that shined on myself and my own mortality. And what is it going to be like for me? And so it's a very, it's a, it's a tough place. But fine, we all have that, I believe. We all have that ability to do that. And if you can't find it on your own, find it within your friends, find it in, in other people that have cared for someone else, because I think it's a really enriching and wonderful um, life experience. Um, these last five, six, seven years have been really tough, but they've been one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. Even, even the difficult parts have taught me so much. So... With that said, I think I'm going to turn it over to Jay. Thank you. But before I say anything, you know, Tom talked about the importance of self-love. And I want to give you an opportunity, if you want to take it, to talk about how you had a recent situation where you were on the receiving end and not on the giving end of, of people. So do you want, do you want to... Sure, yeah, I'm about. Yeah, yeah, I think you should talk about that. Actually, thank you. I didn't even think about that. Um, about a year ago, in January of 2014, um, I was daredeviling through San Francisco on my bike and having a really good time, and I had a really bad accident. And I broke my a part of my elbow that there's a part there that had to be replaced. And so all of a sudden, wow. Thank you so much. I realized that, that, that this has been a real lesson for me. Um, I couldn't do stuff. Like, I couldn't take a shower because I had to wear this thing. And all of a sudden, I needed help. And so I had to ask for help. Mr. Oh, I can handle it. Oh, death and dying, no problem. You're sick. Here I am. It's all so easy. And all of a sudden, I had to really reach out. Um, I wasn't ready for this part. <laughs> the love that I received? For many of you, I'll never forget it. And it taught me a lot. I think it taught me to love even a little bit more. Good food. <laughs> good company, offers to help me take a shower, <laughs> put on that damn <laughs> that's, a, that's another Dharma type. <laughs> um, How long was the <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. That's the flip side of giving, is receiving. And, to, and, I, and I realize now, Stephen sitting here right now, that I had to have that compassion for myself because I had to ask 
and I had to receive. And so, yeah, thank you for that reminder. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy to be here and so grateful for for the people in this room and for the and for the uh, the gay Buddhist fellowship. I left San Francisco on the 29th of October and I just got home on Thursday night. The world, um, most of the world, does not operate in ways with each other the way the people in this room have learned to to treat one another. Another, so it's really wonderful to be back. In uh, in my situation, I um, <clears throat> I have what seems to have become a, a fairly common type of an American family, and that uh, my. My parents got divorced when my brother and I were very young. My father remarried, and I have three younger brothers from him and his second marriage. And it was um, within that part of my family that my recent uh, situation developed. Being the oldest of these younger half brothers, we we generally we all. We all live in different states. I'm on the I'm here, and they they're all on in different states on the East Coast. Typically, we get together for Father's Day, and it was Father's Day about two three years ago or so when I felt the need to say to my younger brothers, "Look, if anything ever happens to one of the folks, I just want you to know." that I'll be here to help out. So that was the part, as I mentioned, to John. That's the theory. I mean, that's the that's part of having learned what I've learned from, from being here, being around to help people who, who need it. And then not knowing when that's going to have to be put into action. I just continued to live my life. I travel about half the time, and every time I've <coughs> traveled somewhere else, I've always thought, well, how easy is it going to be for me to get to New York in case I need to? I plan to be in, uh, in New York for Thanksgiving, first spending uh, a little over a week in the, in the city itself, before going out the day before Thanksgiving to Long Island, about 23 miles east of Manhattan, where my father and stepmother live. And then um, the day before I was going out there, got a text message from my sister-in-law, the wife of my youngest brother, saying that my stepmother had tripped in the house, she broke her right wrist, that's her dominant hand. Between the two of them, my father, my father had given up his driver's license a couple of years before. He's 90. She's now 87. But they're still living in their own house. They're very independent, very autonomous. And they really don't want to have a lot of people helping them out. They, they, they really want and they need to have that, that degree of independence. But now she was not able to drive anywhere. And um, couldn't go shopping, couldn't cook, clean, do anything like that. 
So the um, there was only one thing that 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 had to happen, and that was that I needed to make good on the words that I had voiced a couple of years before. So the next day is Thanksgiving, and she's all wrapped up. She didn't have a cast on yet. She was all wrapped up. She's in pain, and we're all at Thanksgiving together. And I told my brothers and extended family there that I would cancel my flight out, which was going to be the following Monday, December 1st. I was uh, going to be heading out. <coughs> Going to be traveling for a couple of months before coming home here. And this is where the theory and the practice had to make that, uh, that reconciliation. And it's not easy. You made it sound like, you know, you had your whole heart in it and, you know, you're gung-ho for the whole thing. And I have to say that um, on the outside, I was saying, you know, I'll cancel my plans and I'll stay. And inside, I'm going, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it was it was very it was very different. You know, I didn't have that. Oh boy, I can't wait to live with my parents under the same roof. I, I can't say that I had that and that kind of enthusiasm. I was going to do it, but um, but I would, but my the emotions behind it were were lagging behind. A little bit, and um, I did it. You know, I, I just I felt I felt that I needed. You know, as far as, far as the self care is concerned, that that Tom mentioned and that that Roy mentioned too. I sat down at the computer and I sent uh, sent an email to a couple dozen people explaining what was going on and asking for their support. Please call me. Please send me stuff in the mail. Um, I, 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 I recognized the need to, to reach out to people to do that. And I went to high school and college in, in New York. So I had former classmates from both high school and college so I could get together, have lunch with. So that, that was a good... Um, a good way to get out of the house for a while because you know they weren't you know they they were at, they're out of bed they they didn't need the type of care that a lot of people have you know when they're bedridden and um, you know what else could I do to get out of the house couldn't believe I was going to do this but um, there was a gym nearby I thought you know I'm just going to join a gym just as a means to get out of the house every day for a couple of hours. I'm, I'm pretty realistic. You know, I, I, I know that at my age, my, my only hope for having a smoking hot body is cremation. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it wasn't that that I was going for. You know, it was just... You know, I, um, when I when I mentioned the idea of uh, of getting out of the house to go to the gym, my father, my, my brothers were there, and my father said, uh, "We got a treadmill here in the house." And <laughs> my brother Steve said, "Dad, you know, maybe he just wants to look at some other walls for a while," <laughs> which was true. And um, 
and we all we all got we all got through it. And um, it was it was you know as, as Roy described you know it was it the, the experience had had its beauty to it. As I say, being an adult, living under the same roof with, with parents. And, you know, most, most people, when faced with this, this parent thing, you know, our, our, our age, I'm sorry for some of you, I'm dragging you up to my age here, but um, there, there, there are certain realities, you know, of, of, of um, you know, sure, you, you get together for certain holidays or events, and then most people are always very grateful to to be leaving, but you know, here on you know an almost daily basis, I'm faced with um, my father, you know, looking looking over at me, leaving the house and saying, "You're going out like that? Uh, zip up, zip up your coat. It's cold outside. Where's your hat? Where are your gloves? You know." And and one time, heading out and saying, "Do you need any money?" <laughs> Dad, I'm on social security. <laughs> and, and Medicare. <laughs> the money comes in. I don't need any money. So it, it was that, that kind of a situation. But eventually, early January, the cast came off. And by the end of the week, my stepmother got behind the wheel of a car and she, and she drove. And so at least by the time I left, in the middle of January, they were much more able to take care of themselves, and I think I had I had caught up with myself with regard to how I felt about the situation. One thing that did help was that in that email that I wrote to those twenty odd people, I found myself. I you know re reread it and I and I and I found a sentence that I'd written that just kind of flowed out of me and that was um, I'm going to look at this not as an interruption of my life but as my life and and that really helped because I think that so many of us already have the wisdom that we think we're looking for. We, we look for other people, you know, tell me, tell me what to do, how to think, how to be, and we already know the answers. And a couple of people who received that email pointed that out to me that I had said that, and that, that was a good attitude. And that, you know, I think we all need you know, that's our attitude adjustments from from time to time, and that was that was very helpful to me. So I I did look for for that self care and that introspection and that realization that you know that this that that loving kindness, like patience, like equanimity, we and like like dare I say enlightenment. You know, I I don't know. It's it's never a place that we get to. It's always a place that we're going to. You know, we feel like it's here, but as soon as, it, as, soon as we get here, it's now over there. 
and then you know we we may get there, but then the next day we wake up and we have to do it all over again. And that's a good lesson too. The the recognition that we're always working toward getting there and never really get there. I guess that's enough for now. Thank you. How are we on time? I want to make sure we have it's eleven thirty-five. Okay. Okay. Let's just take a few. So. Um, <clears throat> Thank you, Jay. I'm glad you mentioned that about that little line in there about it being your life, not an interruption to your life, because that really caught my attention, too. It's a great lesson. Um, so I think, it, for me, it's been really important to examine my motivation in, you know, working <coughs> in compassionate ways. Uh, so for the last two years, I've been sort of responding to urgent things going on in my family, um, some interpersonal stuff in the family, and then uh, my mom's, uh, my parents' house burning down, um, my mom having a bad fall, breaking things, um, my father dying, um, moving my mom into an apartment after the family home was gone, um, insurance issues, and uh, medical stuff, and you know, all that kind of things. And what I found had happened was my role from childhood of the good son, the capable one, had like completely reasserted itself. I just got back into that, like, oh, do, 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 no, step aside. I don't, you know, you'll make more of a mess of it. Let me do it. <laughs> and I don't want to clean up, you know, the original mess plus the mess you make of it. I'll just do it, you know, and which actually was accurate, but <laughs> it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, and so, you know, in all of this, I recently came to the decision to uh, move back to Arizona in support of my mom, much like we heard described here. Um, <clears throat> and then I got back here and I, you know, was bracing myself for that. And my life ground to a halt for about a month. I mean, I couldn't do, and I couldn't really like get any traction on anything personal, work-wise, certainly, you know, preparing for the move and everything. Um, you know, it's like, well, I could bake some bread. Um, you know, I'll do that. Yeah, then I'll feel productive. Um, and what I realized was there was, you know, a part of me that said, oh, you think you can just make this decision on your own without checking in? You know, put the brakes on. And... Um, so this major internal resistance arose and, you know, after living in 20, 25 years here in San Francisco, um, it's not easy to contemplate just leaving all that behind because, you know, if, once you move out, unless you can keep a place or a rent-controlled apartment or something, it's goodbye, you know. You can come back as a tourist. Um, and I started to feel like the choice really was done out of obligation that this, you know, childhood role had. And, you know, the challenge with that obligation is kind of a recipe for resentment and um, burnout, you know. And so what I realized is I always have the choice not to act. 
you know, always have the choice not to act. As long as we are comfortable with the outcomes of the decision. So, you know, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, he said, you know, I hear you talking about, well, instead of putting it in his voice, he heard me talking about moving back and in support of my mom and all the, you know, the benefits that would derive to her from that. And he never heard me once say what I pictured my life was going to be like. Like, okay, what am I going to do when I get, what do I, what do I envision for myself? What's that going to be? What do I aspire to? Um, and when he pointed that out, I mean, that thought never crossed my mind. And it, he had revealed, he had pointed out to me, like, this enormous blind spot. Where I was just going in auto mode. And, you know, and I think that's the part, the internal part of me that was responding to that, saying like, whoa, you know, where do these tracks that you're on, where do they go? And so, you know, I had to come to realize that there, there are going to be outcomes whether I act or not. I am not going to stem the tide of, you know, my mother's memory loss. Being there is not going to change that. And she's not in danger, physical danger. She's living on her own. She's happy. She's content. She might be a little lonely, you know. But she said, all of my, all of my friends have lost their husbands. And, you know, their adult children are often living their own lives. And they're a little lonely. And we talk to each other. And, you know, it's not the end of the world. So, really for me, the question became, how will I feel with either choice? Can I deal with the feelings that will arise with either choice? And so, you know, things are inevitably going to happen, but I'm not going to prevent a lot of that. And so, you know, I've read this, you know, I've backed up on that decision, and it'll be fall at the earliest, um, and maybe not at all, but I've really got to do some checking in around that, you know. Um, and I guess really, the lesson there is that self-care involves some really difficult decisions. <coughs> Self-compassion involves some very difficult decisions. And, um, you know, but it's necessary. It's necessary to look at that and make those decisions, you know, fully informed by our wisdom. So, you know, with that, I'd really like to hear from all of you about maybe your experiences or what resonated with you and what you can share. So this really um, resonated a lot with me because I'm in the same position as, as the three of you. Um, and uh, and I, was very, I found it very moving. Um, and uh, you know, I think one of the things uh, that helps uh, helps me is I'm taking care of my mother also, and she is like your mother, very depressed. Um, and I'm realizing more and more that that void uh, is, is one that I, I just can't fill, um, or I could go crazy trying to fill it. Um, and in which case, I would need help. Um, but, um, you know, I think it helps to 
kind of remind ourselves that what we, the pattern that we have here in the States, the pattern of sequestering old people mm. from life, essentially, um, is really an aberration. I mean, given, given how human beings have lived <coughs> for most of, our, most of our lives and continue to live today, it's this that is, that is the aberration. It's, it's, it's not the norm. Um, and I think it's a result of idolizing youth um, and seeing youth as being normative and everything else as being uh, the exception to that. Um, and individuality. You know, yeah. we, we glorify yeah, yeah, and how we, you know, the, exactly, yeah. So about 10, and I'm from India where the pattern is really as radically different from this as, as it can be. Mm -hmm. But just because I'm so close to, I'm, because I am Indian, it's, it's hard for me to <coughs> see that as an example. It just is, it's too close somehow. But about 10 years ago, I, I took a trip to Spain. Um, I was with a friend, uh, she was older than me. And um, we were walking around the streets the first day and you know, she said, I mean, yes, the architecture is beautiful and the food is wonderful and all of that, but, but the thing that really stood out for us was seeing, uh, you know, there's a tradition of taking a walk every evening. People go out for a walk. Um, and what we saw, which we would never see here, is um, big, burly men taking walks with their mothers or their aunts. It was clear that these were family relatives. And they were walking. They weren't taking them anywhere. They weren't taking them for an appointment to a doctor or to the grocery store. They were just out for a walk. Um, and my friend said, you know, this is really something you would never see in the States. And it was really very nice to see. Um, and, you know, I, it, 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 was, it was nice to see in the opposite of that, which I see here on, on Valencia Street, the way is developed, developing now. But you know, you go into a restaurant and everyone is between 25 and 30. Mm -hmm. um, there's no mixing between generations and it strikes me as, uh, I mean, it, it seems unnatural. It doesn't seem like a good thing. So I just wanted to say that as a reminder. Um, I don't know, for me as well, to think about you know, what's Normal yeah. And I think it's important to realize that you know this is the society we live in, and, and that so we've created. Mm -hmm. what's that? And that we have created. Yeah, that we've created. But also, you know, it's not my own fault that our society is built the way it is, and I'm living at a distance like everybody else, and all that. So, um, yeah, I agree. It could be different, and there are better ways to do it. But I'm also not going to take on all that weight of like, oh my god, it's horrible, I need to change everything. Shantanu, you're right. Yeah, I lived for two years in West Africa, uh, <coughs> in the early part of uh, you know, 2003 to 2005, and the, the one question that I was asked the most mm -hmm. about our society here was along the lines of, is it true mm -hmm. that when 
your people get old, you take them and you send them to live in places by themselves without your family. And that's the so so people know about that and they, they ask about that and that is a question that they just couldn't understand. I can also add culturally, you know, I was born and raised in San Francisco, but my mom and dad are from were from Peru in South America. And so it's in our culture, it's inherent in me, that there was no way that I was gonna have my mom be put someplace mm. or to you know, even if it's a nice place or whatever, I just couldn't see doing that. I couldn't. So it, it is also a, a, a real cultural thing, and I think it is a real big problem in this country, where all of a sudden they're so. I mean, the elderly are just wonderful. They, they have so much life experience, so many stories, so much to share. But yet, because they're not young, they don't look a certain way or whatever. It's like, oh no, 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 they have to be put over here. I don't want to deal. I'll go visit on Easter, and maybe I'll go visit. And it's like, no way was I going to have that for my mom. Opening a subject that's really difficult for me, I guess. Um, I'm of a certain generation of gay men who um, unexpectedly face the, a huge need for caregiving at a certain, you know, at a certain point and weren't really prepared for it. And for me, caregiving from that point has been kind of wrapped up with tragedy. Um, and so I look, I really appreciate the idea that this is um, love, uh, that it's um, that it's your life, um, that it's not an escape from your life. And um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. It's just that I guess I'm wrestling with the idea of how do you embrace in the way that Roy did like the opportunity for caregiving and what that can give you as opposed to it being this kind of dark um, obligation. If I may, may I answer to that or go with that? For me it was a step-by-step -step process. Um, I'll never forget I think I've shared this story once, so maybe some of you have heard this, but I'll never forget that I had this sort of guardian angel that I met in 1988 when my cousin Gus was dying of AIDS, and I went to this place, and I remember walking into his room so I could be supportive of him, and I walked in, and he was mad at me for some reason. He was giving me attitude the whole time, right? So I walked in, and I was like, hi, he's like, hello, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. So he was in a good space. But the gentleman that was in his bed next to him, and I, I, I don't really remember, but he's known to me as Michael. I looked at him, he looked at me, and he smiled, and he was very jaundiced. You could see that he didn't have much more time. And he just looked at me, and he said, hi. And I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, oh, you know, and so we started talking. So all of a sudden, just really quick, I'll, I'll never forget it, he wanted some candy, right? So I said, oh, I go, there's a store 
just half a block down. What kind do you want? So he named three different kinds of candy bars and said, oh, cool, I, I happen to like all three. So I was like very excited for him. So he really wanted this candy. So I said, okay, did you want anything? No, fine. So I walked <laughs> out. <laughs> it's just our relationship. So, so I brought him the candy and, I, you know, he, and he, the way he ate the candy, I'll never forget it. Okay, so he was just savoring every bite. So I'm just sitting there hanging with him and the social worker walked in and this little woman with her little clipboard and her little pinstripe suit and she just came kind of, and she's like, oh, um, is everything fine here or whatever? And I was like, yeah, no, everything's good. She goes, oh, you're eating candy? He goes, yeah, Roy, Roy bought it for me. She goes, oh, you went out to get the candy for him? And I said, well, yeah, there's a store. She's like, okay, the next time you just ring the bell and get the front. And so she started kind of like letting him know that he did something wrong. So, and she's like the so. So I pulled her. I said, "Can you can you come with me just for a second? <laughs> so I said to her, um, "I said, don't you understand what's going on?" And she looked at me. She goes, "What do you mean?" And I said, "He probably knows that, whether he does or he doesn't." I said, "We've connected," and I was able to do something for this man. I said, he, it's not about the candy. It's that somebody showed, his, showed him some kindness. Mm -hmm. I never forgot that lesson. I never, I, I, to this day, I still picture Michael. And he's like a guardian angel, like a beacon for me. And that's where I think this really started. To be able to sort of connect with somebody like that and then to see the flip side a little bit with Miss Thang with her clipboard, it was a whole, it was just completely the opposite. That was such a wonderful life lesson. And there's also, that's the thing with these things, when these things happen, there's so many lessons and so many subtle things that happen that if you can connect to them, I think it helps to bridge that a little bit and to bridge the fear that you might feel because there's so much to gain. So are we, are we out of time? So I just want to close with a quote. Um, <clears throat> this is from Sherry Huber. She's the uh, founder of the Zen Center in Mountain View, California. The only way out of this life of suffering is through the doorway of compassion. Yes, but how do I find the doorway? You can't find it because you are it. The moment there is nothing left of you but compassion, you are the doorway. The door is wide open, and you are free. Thank you. Okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, now's our time for closing and announcements. Uh, who's the host? Is that what you Kenny. Okay. So. Um, uh, he'll be carrying around the Donna Bowl, and I'll let him talk about the host business. But Donna is um, the word for generosity, so um, we ask for a $10 donation if you can, which goes to pay for the rent for this room, um, speaker honorariums. Not today. Um, not today. Newsletter, <laughs> <laughs> Larkin Street, our, our work with Larkin Street, and um, outreach. Um, a group gets together after uh, to social. We socialize out in the hall after the gong ends, the meditation, and then um, people go out to lunch if you're interested. Next week is uh, Dale Borbo. I'm probably 
which are in the um, Dale Borglum is the founder and executive director of the Living Dying Project. He is a pioneer in the conscious dying movement and has worked directly with thousands of people with life-threatening illness and their families over 30 years. <clears throat> in 1981, Dale founded the first residential facility for people who wish to die consciously in the United States, the Dying Center. He has taught and lectured extensively on the topics of spiritual support for those with life-threatening illness, caregiving as a spiritual practice, and healing at the edge of illness, of death, of loss, of crisis. Dale has a BS from UC Berkeley and a PhD from Stanford University. He's a co-author of Journey of Awakening, a Meditator's Guidebook, and has taught meditation for the past 35 years. Back to next week. Um, are there any other announcements? Yeah. Yeah, I'd just like to mention uh, two experiences that are some lessons of uh, compassion that I experience and recommend. The first, uh, there's a, the Chinese artist, I Wei Wei, that has an incredible uh, exhibition on Alcatraz. It's quite moving, and I highly recommend it. And there's also, right in our neighborhood of Broadway Theater, the life and music of Sylvester. Oh, that's for today and have some snacks um, and teas and if you drink tea please wash your cups with hot soapy water and uh, if you want to be on the mailing list there's the sign up sheet right outside and we bring the dinable around yeah or oh, 12 30 uh, people meet in front to go for lunch if you want to join Thank you. truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the quality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.